Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As riots erupt across France over plans to increase the retirement age, what does this mean for Macron's presidency? Is this just another French protest or something more significant? To discuss, I'm joined by the journalist and commentator Anne-Elizabeth Moutet. How significant are these protests compared to historic protests? It's a different era, and so it's very difficult to compare them. But people have started bringing up May 68, which stopped the country. But it was such a different time. And it was, I would say, the one huge difference between May 68 and now is, from all accounts, it was a very joyous time. People were enjoying themselves. It was the general, the goal was this big, literally physically and big towering historical figure and the president. And it was so different from the sort of mean resentment of Emmanuel Macron. And also it was a very different time because then the students had unions, the sort of workers unions had organized the follow up and the general strike. And now it comes from all bits and all places with different different slogans and different everything. So we're talking about a different time, but in terms of disruption, it's not so much in people's everyday life as well, because yes, there are queues to get petrol in the countryside, but the cities are no longer stopped by that because we no longer are allowed to have cars. And you can still get food. Nobody's stocking up food the way they did either in May 68 or in the, at the beginning of COVID. But in terms of image, that is huge. For people that don't know, why are people protesting and rioting? Originally, all the protests are caused by Emmanuel Macron's second attempt to pass a pensions bill in order to make the pension system sustainable. And just as a reminder, the French system is a pay-as-you-go system. It was created in 1945. We had the same type of reforms in France that you had in Britain at the time of the beverage reforms. And it's a pure pay-as-you-go system, which means that people who are currently working pay for pensioners. Nobody has a pot. You're allowed to build yourself a pot privately, but the national system is pay-as-you-go. And in 1945, you had eight people at work and for one single pensioner. And today you've got 1.8 people at work for one pensioner. And it's very obvious that the system is not manageable like that. Emmanuel Macron's reasons are perfectly logical. And uh, because of exactly the same causes, Nicolas Sarkozy, 10 years ago, had managed to pass a bill that raised pension age between age 60 to 62. So what Macron wants to do is the follow-up to this. And he changes fewer problematic things, at least for for the voters, which is France has 40 different systems in addition to the national pension system, and most of them are more favorable. And people from train drivers to opera dancers retire earlier. And it's understandable because their jobs are very technical, very physical, and there's no way you can dance at the opera at 64. 
But still, all of these regimes sometimes bleed over in the entire profession, and surely a secretary at the opera can work until 64. That was what Macron tried to do in 2019. And then COVID hit, and that sort of was abandoned after some anger. Now he started again. He announced this last summer. The discussions in the House started in September, and then the whole thing grew slowly and slowly. He completely mismanaged the discussions that you have to hold in France in order to get, if not approval, at least a measure of compromise that works. And it ends up to the situation in which people still complain bitterly about the reform to the pension bill, but they also complain about the entire way the government seems to be talking down to them. They're also complaining about the cost of living crisis. They're complaining about many things that are part of the current ecosystem. People are worried everything is more expensive, salaries don't go up. They, the, they look at the prob probability of an economic crisis that's going to hit. We know that there are going to be more price increases for things that you can't not buy, like food. And we also know that there has been in France for the past four decades structural unemployment that used to go to 10 or 11 percent and last years like that. We've gone down under Macron to 7.5 percent, but that's a sort of hard limit. And you also, one of the ways to do this is not the main way, but one of the ways to achieve this is, of course, not to count as unemployed people who have stopped registering for the dole. And after 50, it's difficult to get hired. After, after 60, impossible. So what people are also looking at with this reform is not so much two more years of having to work, but two more years on the dole. And that's a very different proposition. And last but not least, there is now no longer trust in France for the capacity of the French state to, to manage the country properly. And that's a very big thing because the state, the French bureaucracy, is actually efficient or used to be very efficient and used to be very generous. And the French don't like the state, but they trusted it to deliver what they see as something that they should be getting. For instance, we had good infrastructures, good roads, good trains, good health service, good education, good benefits in a system that was pretty unforgiving when you were on the dole. All sorts of things that were part of the French compact and made life in France grumbly existence, but where your, your personal security and I should have included the police, also the physical security. All those aspects that protect people were insured. And that's slowly gone down. The system is becoming very expensive. The French state accounts for 57% of expenditure of the French debt, which is huge, and it doesn't deliver so much. There are fewer, you know, no branch lines for trains. Many branch lines have been given up. The schools are not very good. The ratings, French schools, which used to be very high in the past 10, 15 years, have slipped down to the bottom of the PISA leak tables. Many things are getting worse for a higher and higher price. Lots of taxes in France. We're the most taxed country in, in the EU. And so there's this sort of feeling that this is yet another reform. It doesn't look very organized. It doesn't look very, it doesn't have an overarching team. It's just a theme. It's just saying, look, this is going to save the system until 2030. And uh, we don't trust the government to deliver something that will satisfy us in the end. So that's also one of the reasons. It's that Macron's government, he's been now in power for six years, a little over six years. 
and he hasn't de he hasn't delivered the kind of reforms that we had under previous presidents and that's also part of this complicated mass of reasons that cause the anger and throws people in the streets how different are these protests to the yellow vest protests from a few years ago they were very different six months ago they are now dovetailing together which is also one of macron's big mistakes because what we saw at the time of the yellow vest was uh, completely grassroots. It was the yellow vests were what the Americans would call France's deplorables, people who don't vote right or do not vote at all, and they never have enough money to make end meets at, ends meet at the end of the month. They were mostly in the provinces. They had jobs, but even their jobs made them working poor. And it was really something that was the great cry from the belly of the nation, so to speak. And they refused to have leaders so that you had this sort of immediate violence that was very much unrelated to any kind of relation that you could have in a negotiation for something. And when the pension crisis started, it was very organized. The unions were in charge. It was fascinating to see that the French unions, which are, have very few members in France compared, for instance, even to Britain today, got this every week. They had a day of action. Every week they had marches. There was absolutely no violence whatsoever, which was amazing and actually a sort of good cause for optimism because there's been violence in France for marchers that were completely unrelated to even demands of the people who marched. And Emmanuel Macron made the massive mistake of not talking himself to the, with the unions. He not only did he not talk with the unions, he didn't even talk with the ref, reformist union, CFDT, which historically has been the bridge between demands and, and the power. And that is the contempt was now felt not only by people in the countryside, but the contempt was felt by everyone saying he won't even talk to us. And as usual, he lectured people. He looked very eager, very fresh, very frisky, how this was good for them. And people said, you're talking down at us and we're not interested. And the current situation is a sort of perfect storm in which now you see violence in all sorts of things. You've seen something completely unrelated last weekend, unrelated to the pensions reform, which is real violence with the sort of mortar shots, etc., for the establishment of reservoirs for water to keep water in winter so that agricultural can work in summer. And the Greens and, and extre the extremists that now show, show up at practically every public display showed up. There may be people in hospital who could die. This same reservoir system is being used by a département nearby that actually has a Green president. So you've got people who come up and they say, I know that this is bad for the economy. This is bad for the ecology. This is bad for the planet. And next door, you've got someone who's been elected on a green platform, a member of the Green Party, and they have those things and saying that it's a good way of husbanding water for the dry season. So it's a situation in which nothing is, in, nobody is in control of anything. There's this famous video going around on the internet of people in Bordeaux drinking some wine whilst there's some fires going on behind them. And in the UK, People like to joke about strikes in France and nothing really gets done. What is it like to live in France at the moment? Are you having to experience mega disruption in your own life or most people just getting on normally? People are getting on more or less normally for many reasons, including the fact that ever since we've had COVID lockdowns, we can, lots of people, not all of them, but lots of people can work from home. And in terms of public transport, it's been possible. 
what has not been liked, but it has nothing to do with this movement again. It's we were talking about the fact that public services in France are getting worse association, but by having fewer metro trains and fewer fewer buses, you can imagine that the result is packed trains, packed buses, and we have now Hulet's rules in Paris that make it more difficult to go to Paris, not to mention Mayor Hidalgo's regulations against cars. So the discontent in general is not so much amplified by the strike. So in terms of the recent protests and riots across France, how much has the discontent got to do with Macron himself and a sort of hatred of the president? I think half of it, at least, is discontent with the president. And it's always the same thing. He's got nicknames that tell the story. He's called the powdered one, le poudré. And that's that's a reference to the powdered wigs that people wore in the Ancien Régime. And he he's seen as, first of all, it's very obvious for everyone that he is a technocrat without a cause. He doesn't really have beliefs. He has, there's a wonderful meme on the internet, which is the Macron bingo. And it's a card with lots of little pictures in a grid. And it starts at the extreme left where he says that France committed crimes against humanity when it was ruling Algeria. And it goes to the extreme right when he says that Marshal Pétain was a great soldier and presumably in the First World War. But essentially, this is somebody who's sticking boxes for a combination of reasons, and some of them are opportunistic, and some others are really somebody who's just trying to pull with the whiskers of people almost at random. And the feeling is somebody who does not have it together. It, there's, there's a combination of the arrogance of someone who has now become weak in the country. There's the general feeling that he has no beliefs, except in himself. He campaigned in 2017 saying all mainstream parties are dead and we can take the good ideas and we don't need those parties. And his great phrase was when he was giving those sort of impassioned speeches was en même temps, at the same time. And at the same time, you could be left and you could be right. And at the same time, you could pick the best on one side and the best on the other. And people bought it and they thought, We've seen the mainstream parties. They were not especially edifying. Why not? And what it ended up being is somebody who's making hay of all sorts of things, but it's it doesn't end in something concrete. And that's a really widespread feeling. I'm amazed at the different people I talk to all the time and how they come from different places. But they say he's selfish. He's narcissistic. He, uh, he makes mistakes. One of the massive mistakes was to have this the communique when the king's visit to France was cancelled. And in this release, he, he mentions Tuesday, tomorrow's demonstration, nominally saying that was one of the reasons why the king couldn't come. And you think, are you saying that because there's a demonstration in the street, you cannot maintain order, but also you're saying that essentially you're giving the unions and the demonstrators a massive, a massive points. He's one of those really clever people who make those kinds of mistakes. They exist everywhere. What about this video of him in an interview where he slips off a watch? How interesting has that been in France? Everybody has been, people are not necessarily fair with Macron because really he's just, there's something very primal about people not liking him. But the thing of the watch, I saw it and I saw the explanations and he, it's perfectly understandable. He was wearing this big watch. The watch is an expensive watch, but it's nothing like the Swiss monstrosities at a hundred thousand quid watch, but it's a 2000 pound watch. It is a special model by a French watchmaker, which was with the emblem of the uh, an elite battalion. 
and on the typeface you've got the blue of the French Gendarmerie Nationale and he was wearing it. It's a chunky watch and whenever he was seated at a table with two journalists and whenever he was putting his name on the, or his hands on the table, it went bong. And so he took it off thinking, okay, every time you hit the microphone and it makes noise. And I rewatched the that bit of the interview and it was very obvious that was all it was. He was just trying not to get this on the mic. The result, of course, has been that he's hiding his watch because he's rich, he's a merchant banker. This is a man who has made lots of money working for merchant banks. You've got someone like that in Britain as well. That's about the, I would say that kind of reproach is about the only thing they've got in common. They're much unlike one another that people think actually. In terms of Macron being able to pass these reforms, how is he doing this? Because he's not going through the parliament, am I right in saying that? And how successful do you think he'll be eventually and ultimately, I mean? Technically, he can pass it because that Article 49.3 of of the French constitutional law makes it perfectly normal to pass a bill in parliament, especially a bill that has to do with the finances of the state, as long as you agree to censorship uh, motion de censure, a uh, sort of motion of defiance, basically, uh, voted in Parliament afterwards. So that what you're doing is you're saying my government is going to run this bill through, and if you don't like my government, vote it out. And the government of Elizabeth Bond, the Prime Minister, skimmed through with nine votes, which was honestly really touch and go. It's All of this is completely constitutional. Article 49.3 has been used a hundred times since the beginning of the Fifth Republic. If Emmanuel Macron had used it in September, when he started discussions in Parliament, instead of letting the whole thing grow so much, if that literally rammed it through, probably people would have grumbled and you wouldn't have the current situation just festered and festered. But what happens now? The bill is now being looked at by the Constitutional Council, considering that the Constitutional Council might find bits of the bill that are not quite constitutionally belonging in that bill, in which case we call this and it's going to be amusing for Brits, it's cavalier, and you have article cavalier, and you get rid of them, and in the meantime, the law is suspended. But it's possible they will pass the law, but there's also something in the French Constitution that says that if the nation refuses a bill, the nation can call a referendum as long as you've got at least four million signatures to say we're against this bill. Where it becomes more interesting is that they would get the four million votes, people who would not vote with Marine Le Pen in Parliament because they don't like her, or with Mélenchon because they don't like him, and who wouldn't vote uh, for the, the vote of defiance, not to mingle their votes, would vote in, in that the people who vote for them would in a referendum would answer the question. And the question of every referendum is, do you like the person who's asking you the question? And so it would be 10 million votes. That wouldn't be a problem. But there's nine months constitutionally in which you have to garner the votes. That means that the bill is suspended for nine months and the entire country is simmering and more than simmering for nine months. And that's a complete disaster. So probably if the bill goes to referendum, then Macron pulls it because he has no choice, because he can't face a situation that's not finished for nine months. So he's not looking at a very good time. And the likelihood of that bill passing is almost nil, I would say. Now, a British columnist recently compared Macron to Margaret Thatcher. And he claimed that we've got this this sort of socialist entrenched elite in France who are trying to prevent these economic reforms from happening and he's going against that sort of that mass movement and uh, making sure that France is economically viable. Can we make that comparison? 
Oh, God, no. Margaret Thatcher had conviction. Even people who loathed her knew that she had conviction. Conviction. She had moral principles, that she knew exactly what she wanted to achieve. And it, it, she was such a different character, and the time was such a different time. And the situation of the country was so different that it's absolutely unrelated whatsoever. It's not because you say no that you're Margaret Thatcher. And anyway, Macron never says no. He starts talking for half an hour, telling you uh, with lots of literary references why he's more intelligent than you are. But no, it's got nothing to do with it. You should know that the entire there are more people in France who think that Macron is on the right than is on the left. But you've got people on the left who think he's on the right, and he's managed the Omembly at the same time in such a way that the people who dislike him accuse him of being on the side of the political spectrum that they don't like. But first of all, Margaret Thatcher's reforms were reforms that were really changing the country entirely. This is a peddling reform. Honestly, it's a small reform. It's he's sprinkled many to people who complain bitterly in course of complicated negotiations, which means that it's not even going to change so much to the balance of the exchequer pensions. So no, he's absolutely not comparable to Margaret Thatcher. I think even people who hated Margaret Thatcher knew that she was sincere. I want to talk about the French tendency to protest. Have you ever been on a protest? Oh, yes, not in a long time. But yes, I've been on protests. When I was at university, I had a great time going on protests. I was very sort of rabidly left wing and I enjoyed myself tremendously. And at you, especially when you're a student, a part of it is seeing your friends and saying the world is against us, but we shall prevail. And that was great fun. I've been on protests for different things. I've been on marches for Ukraine. I recently, uh, every now and then I show up and say, look, we, we've got to be counted. But that happens in Britain as well. And, and that happens when you're a student anyway. What's the fun of being at university if you can't go and protest things? So I think that's the same in Britain. And what's different here is the complete kabuki of ritual marches that exist in the culture and have existed in the culture for centuries. I would say... You know, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. No, not in that shape, but certainly in well, over a century. But all of this goes back to the, the French Revolution at one stage. It's making yourself heard and the great principles of most of the time of the left against the fascists, which was also something that mattered a great deal. And the culture changes. And like everything in the culture, it, it's, it looks the same, but the motivations that they've got some of the past baked in, but they've also got lots of changes. But certainly the unions always counted themselves by going on protests that were more marches than actual, you know, they were protests, but mostly they were, here we are, we exist, we can get one million people in the streets, you have to count with us. And it's also been seen that France as a country become, when things become strained, governments are going to yield to the people who make the most noise. Somebody told me here in France some years back, squeaky wheel gets the green. And that's been one way of getting something. Do you think that France has a tradition of political violence? Actually, not so much. It's an interesting question. No, in the 1930s, you had the extreme right beating up MPs and by 
own grandfather was nearly beaten up by the Action Francaise, but not only did he not manage to be, to be beaten up, but the, he got the head of the Action Francaise, Charles Maurras, jailed for eight months. So we count this as a win. It's, it's not such, it didn't used to be such a violent country individually, but there's a tradition of revolutions, which is a very different thing. So, you know, uh, 1789, 1830, 1848, 1871. This country, thank God. This one, the first politician who was assassinated in France in 75 years was in the south of France. She was a national, national front politician at the time, and that much more got to do with the corruption and the gangster culture in some parts of the south of southeast of France than it had to do with pure politics. But street violence that became that came increasingly in the past 20 years, and there's been a toleration by the police of people called casseurs who break up things and loot things. And one of the reasons is that in the late 80s or early 90s, I can't remember, but at the time when Jacques Chirac was prime minister and the home secretary was Charles Pasqua, there was a demonstration of students and one young man was hit by the police and he died. And it turned out that he was he had a kidney weakness and that was one of the reasons why he died. But the French were horrified at the idea that someone had died at a demonstration when in all of May 68, in two months, nobody had died. And there has been this sort of reluctance to make arrests and go against the increasing, completely anarchistic violence after demonstrations because of that, because they're terrified. And in so many ways, the faults of policing that you see now in France have got to do with contradictory injunctions to the police by politicians and the, you know, the higher-ups in the police and in the gendarmerie is get them to stop, but do not kill them, which, you know, is very good. It's That's what it should be. But then the instructions are given are contradictory. And what we have seen in France, when you look back at May 68, as May 68 was a time of absolutely brilliant policy, and everybody was so busy chanting CRS, SS, the Compagnie Républicaine de Sécurité, the right police, were SS, which they weren't, they didn't kill anyone. They did go with the truncheons from time to time. But we've never had such good policy in that nobody died, the demonstrations happened, and the country reunited in June 68. All of this shows you that in terms of the breakdown of institutions in France, the breakdown of the police is also something that we have to worry about. But there has been a certain level of political chaos in France over the last decade with the collapse of the mainstream parties, the rise of the extreme parties on the right and the left, and obviously Macron winning almost by default to try and prevent the extremes from winning. Do you see a revolutionary mood? Do you feel a revolutionary mood as you walk the streets of Paris at the moment? I don't feel a revolutionary mood. I take public transport, I go out shop in supermarkets, I talk with people, and I feel a mood of annoyance more than anger. I feel a mood of sort of exasperation because things are expensive and life is getting more difficult and the prospects are not good. It's going to get worse before it gets better. When you talk with people, I feel more of a revolutionary mood on the left around Paris than I do 
about the right. But if I go, for instance, in the southeast, in Provence, places like that, and you go away from the nice, beautiful places with Parisians holiday, and you go to normal cities, and you go to the market, and you talk with people, and these people all vote for the national rally now, you also feel anger. There's also anger about immigration in areas, and this is not something you're supposed to say, but this is how the national rally was elected, because they were saying what was unpalatable and which you could get into court for saying, which is that there's a breakdown of social services because there's too much weight on social services, and there's a disproportional representation of minorities in, in French jails because they are both poor and not integrated in French society. And again, the vast majority isn't. It certainly has actually integrated, but there's enough visible trouble that didn't used to exist 30 years ago for people to be to, to the same kind of revolutionary spirit, but on the right. And that expresses itself by saying, we want Marine Le Pen and she will bring law and order. And she is sitting back during that reform while the NUPES, Mélenchon MPs were shouting and interrupting the vote and waving flags and singing during the debates and tabling tens of thousands of amendments to filibuster down the discussion on the bill. Marine Le Pen and her MPs, she told them all to wear ties and the women to come in skirts and to all come look completely conservative and sensible. And what she's doing is she's preparing people to try and see her as somebody who could be in charge. She has missed three times, but she might make it next time. Now, it's interesting because there's been, we're obviously talking about the revolution and French history, and this is all really fascinating. But there's also a, an interesting link because you mentioned earlier that King Charles was due to visit France this week for his first foreign visit, a state visit to France. And obviously, it's been postponed. How many people are making comparisons between, I don't know, Louis XVI maybe coming to Paris and, and King Charles's visit? Oh, there are so many people who are painting Macron as somebody being Louis XVI in a powdered wig that they they do. The, the King of England is irrelevant. There you, you had people mostly from the Nupes who are people who read books actually and have a sense of history. And they said, we've got guillotines, but mostly the French don't think about this. There's 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II in which the French were very fond of her. And there was no way you wanted to have a revolution against this nice lady with, with a good smile and obviously enjoying the love of her subjects. And so it's not so much relevant. But what was very relevant, which of course was scared, was that he had prepared, the French protocol had prepared a nice visit for King Charles. And the visit catered to his interest in green things so that he would travel to Bordeaux on a train. But we weren't sure that there would be a train. He was supposed to ride on a brand new electric tramway in Bordeaux. But the, the driver said, no, we're not driving the train for kings or anybody else. And there was a state dinner at Versailles. And even though they were very careful in the menu of not having anything that looked amazing, they had something like the sort of fancy chicken and apple tart. But still, people said they're going to eat at Versailles where Marie Antoinette ate cake and they're going to receive him in splendor and we are going to besiege the chateau. And that the optics of this would have been disastrous at many for many things. And in the end, there was also a question of security. I don't think anybody wants to kill the king and I don't even think many people want to kill Macron and certainly they're not ready for it. Thank God, again. But the optics would have detracted so much from the object of the visit, which was choreographed by the Foreign Office and Number 10 so that Britain and France would be friends again after the years of Macron-Boris, in which it didn't work out, and after Brexit, in which the idea was we have, we need to have a reasonable partner on either side, we can make that one work. France is one of the opening 
places of the EU for Britain to get better deals, so that you had Prince William, the Prince of Wales, in Warsaw at the time that just before the visit of the King to France, and all of this was supposed to herald a new discussions with the EU in with less acrimony. And all of this has gone by the wayside and it's been hijacked by the turmoil over the pension reform. So obviously it's been a blow to the British, but how much of a blow has it been to Macron himself having to postpone this trip? I would say it's a much bigger blow to Macron than to the British, because at the end of the day, the attitude in, in Downing Street and Buckingham Palace was, as long as we have security and the king is not mobbed, we're sure we can work out something. And the French attitude was, my God, we're going to look terrible, which we do. And I wrote in the Telegraph last week about the king looking out the windows of his car and seeing piles of rubbish possibly seeing rats. We have so many that he would have seen one or two. Seeing a country in which part of the system doesn't work with instructions on the walls. All of this would have looked very bad. The strikes would have looked very bad. And the the whole intention was to have goodwill. But it's France that basically blinked and said, no, we can't do this. In terms of Paris itself, now you've described a few things there, a few problems with, with your city that you live in. It's preparing for the 2024 Olympics. Do you think those preparations are going well? I think those preparations are going badly, and there are several reasons why they're going badly. First of all, because the current situation where we can't ensure the security of a British delegation for three days. The Olympics are two weeks, and honestly, we don't have the police. You can remember the standard way of mishandling the Liverpool supporters lost. And these, again, were policing problems, and really, you have the sort of general policing thing. But the other thing is that while the Olympics in London were managed by essentially business people and experts and people who did that. In France, every attribution has been given through a system of cronyism among politicians. And these people are not competent enough. And I'm not saying this on my own. I quote a French préfet who told me that and who's interested in those things. No, I don't think we are going to manage it very well. I think the many conflicting politicians battling over this, the mayor of Paris, who's a socialist allied to Greens, has decided that the special housing that's being built for the athletes and will then become social housing will not have air conditioning because it's bad for the planet. I'm not sure whether it's bad for the planet, but it's not going to be terribly good if we have a heat wave in the middle of the summer with top athletes about to compete. Most of the new equipment, stadia, etc., are going to be in difficult neighborhoods north of Paris, and because that's supposed to be structural sort of improvement for the country. But I'm not sure that you want sort of sharp increase of funds in an area that otherwise is still where the most crime and the most problems happen is a good thing. And so all of this in France is mired in petty politics. And this is a country in which, for many reasons, services don't work so well. I've heard people say, look, we can't handle it, we should give up. But nobody's going to give up on the Olympic Games until possibly one week beforehand. It will cost us everything. And it's, it's, nobody has a good prognosis about the Olympic Games now, except Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, who lives in a wonderful fantasy world. So again, looking forward into the future, if Macron passes this reform, what happens? If he doesn't pass the reform, what happens? What is the what does his sort of the remaining years of his presidency look like? That's not going to be very good. We don't know, but either he decides to give it up to call to call a general legislative election, and the likelihood is that his party will be cut to pieces. In which case you will have who know who knows, but probably a majority of that it might end up 
a majority, a qualified majority to the national rally? We don't know. The If he calls that, he resigns, in which case, whoever gets elected president next, the difficult job of putting the country back together and Macron runs again in, it would no longer be 2027, but because he hasn't had a second, a full second term, he could run again. That's a fantasy that has been floated, you know, it's been floated enough around Paris that it was in Le Monde a few weeks back, but it's not, it's, you know, the likelihood is perhaps 15%. Calling a general election is going to be interesting because he can't. He, right now, he thinks that he can still bring the country back together, but that, I think, is... Clark Cuckooland. It is well known that Macron is somebody to whom you cannot, he hasn't got friends who will actually tell him, look, you're making a mistake. Even people who are at school, in high school with him, cannot tell him, and they, they tell this. The only person who will tell him that he's making a mistake is his wife. That's not enough for somebody to take informed decisions. What we are likely to see is more muddling through and more and more acrimonious. Let's end the interview by talking about Macron's opponents. There's lots of, obviously, discussions in the UK throughout the years about Le Pen and Zemmour and the left, Menchelon. How are they reacting to the protests and the riots? And are there any winners and losers on the opposition parties out of this situation? It's interesting that you're mentioning Zemmour, because on this one, he practically does not exist. Because he's a one-issue guy, and his issue is immigration. And one of the things that are really interesting about those strikes that we haven't mentioned so far, and those marches that we haven't mentioned so far, is you have no visible minorities in them. You have no people from the banlieues in them. And the reason for that is that they are protests of people who feel that they are mostly bearing the weight of the country on their shoulders because they're working. So we're talking about one third of the population of France because you've got lots of pensioners, and they already have the pension, nobody's going to touch it, so they don't really demonstrate. You've got young people, and some of them come, and the richer they are, the more they demonstrate. It's very interesting. Harris's poshest school, Ecole Alsacienne, had pupils on their parents' dime, demonstrating and striking. You've got universities like Fien and elite schools like Sciences Po, where they do strike and support the strikers, and that's left-wing gesticulation. It's got nothing to do with the sort of general interest. You've got people on the dole, but you've got also the people in the banlieue, and most of them are still working. They're in the gig economy, many of them, and they're not concerned by that either. And the ones who are not in the gig economy, many of them are on benefits, and so they are part of the people for whom the workforce, that big third of the French nation is actually paying. The workforce is paying for the pensioners, it's paying for the people on the dole, it's paying for the people who got minimal benefits, it's paying for families and all the rest of the nation that until now has been well taken care of by the French state. And that's also why it's not a Zemmour, it's not a Zemmour question. Sociology has people are well off. There are people who didn't like Marine Le Pen for many reasons, including class ones. It's different areas of France from Marine Le Pen. It's less populous. And therefore, they're looking at the reform. Most of them think it's not pleasant, but it's got to be done because, again, too many, too many pensioners and for, for us to pay so much. So he's out of this. He's been out of the political race, I would say, since the war in Ukraine, because his first reactions were ungenerous. He said that France should not receive Ukrainian refugees. And even though he said afterwards they, they, they want to go to places like Poland because it's just close, it was still seen as ungenerous. But mostly until we, we got a situation in which there was a war in Europe, a hot war in Europe, people thought he could be a good president, but now they feel that he doesn't have enough versatility, 
he doesn't understand the abroad. The abroad might come at us with tanks and bombs. And so he's almost <coughs> out of the picture. The only thing he has changed, which is a big thing, is the realism about social questions, including immigration. But that's bleeding into other parties, including liberal parties. But what about Le Pen now, and what about Le the Pen, socialists? Yeah. Le Pen is a big winner. Le Pen is a big winner because she has actually said that this was a bad bill. Marine Le Pen has said that we should go back to the uh, retirement age of 60, which was given to the French from 65 in 1980 when Mitterrand became the first left-wing president of the Fifth Republic. But she said that because her electorate is working class and her electorate are exactly the people with difficult jobs, physical jobs, who are the most affected by the current bill. But she's been extremely responsible. She's been very quiet. She's been, they tabled a motion of no confidence in the House, knowing that there was another one spearheaded by a centrist of all people who might win. She has been very reasonable on this and she has just accused Macron of being deaf and dumb to a reason, which of course works for everyone. So I would say that she's getting out of this as somebody who's not encouraging people to break, down, break things, not encouraging people to riot, and, that, and still supporting reasonable sort of amendment or a different bill. The left is a strange animal because Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who didn't even deign to be elected an MP because he was an MP for Marseille, he would have been re-elected easily. You don't need to be an MP to be in politics in France. And he decided that he has said, he's on the record for saying several times, that real sort of legitimacy comes from the street and not from parliament. And this is, if you think about it, it's probably the most dangerous thing that has been said in, in, in several years in France. His coalition, NUPES, took advantage of the fact that the Socialist Party was dead. And Hidalgo, were the, who was also disliked, but she scored 1.7% in the presidential election. And she would have scored something like five, but somebody else would have scored something like five, but she scored 1.7%. So when you had the legislative election after the presidential election, the Socialist Party was laminated and there was this coalition which has largely share. And they essentially are saying, down with the Fifth Republic, we want a Sixth Republic. They are using revolutionary language. I wonder what would happen, but they are, you know, they are French chavistas. They are chavistas in a much richer country and with a, tra a country of much sort of stronger democratic tradition. And they themselves are different, but they have eaten up those who joined the coalition. And it's possible they certainly they are going to be one block that's going to be a nightmare for the for years to come for anybody else in power because they're not stupid they in but they are not pushing you've got a wing that pushes gender activism uh, a third third generation feminism all, all the woke stuff that you can use to you they've got lots of young people who vote for them the dem demographics are good for them in the future unless young people age and change. And they have many reasons to, to denounce a system in which the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. It's far less the case in France than in most other countries of the first world, but it still is something that you can argue. And so they will be part of the both the problem and the solution. Mute. Vive la France. Thank you so Merci much. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know 
via the Apple Podcasts app.